Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. Great to be talking with you again today on a beautiful morning here in Sydney where the sun is shining. It's only a few days until the shackles come off and we're allowed to actually go and see other people uh, and all is right with the world. But all is not right, in my opinion, with our Bible reading. Well, there's one particular blunder I think we keep making in our Bible reading, especially as evangelicals. And I've been talking recently with the trainees at Campus Bible Study about this, as we talk about how to become better readers of the Bible. And in today's episode, I want to explore this mistake that we sometimes make, that I've certainly made on various occasions in my time, and which it would be excellent if we could observe and understand and stop making. So today is about the blunder we keep making in our Bible reading. Now, like most of you, as I was speaking with the trainees at Campus Bible Study, they've got a pretty decent idea about how to read the Bible, and they read the Bible really well. They know about the reading process. We've talked about coma. Some of you have heard of the coma way of thinking about reading, that you look at the context, you observe what's going on in the text, you draw together what the text means, and then you apply it to yourself. That's C-O-M-A, coma. And coma is a pretty good method, but I love definitions, as you know. I love summarizing things. I love clarifying things. And so I've put together this following definition to sharpen the trainee's understanding of what's involved when you read the Bible, what's involved in exegesis, if you want to make it sound a bit more impressive. And here's my definition. I'm suggesting that the aim of good Bible reading is to listen and to respond to what God is doing in this text through these sentences addressed to their original implied readers within the larger context of God's saving revelation of his son in the Bible. Now, there are all sorts of interesting things we could dig into in that definition. I'll say it again because this is audio and you can't sort of read it again. The, the definition is that the aim of good Bible reading is to listen and respond to what God is doing in this text through the sentences that are there addressed to their original implied readers within the larger biblical context of God's saving revelation of his son. Now, there's a number of interesting things about this definition, and I might even come back to it in a future episode and have another crack. But the aspect that I want to pursue in today's post relates to the blunder that we keep making in our Bible reading. And it's contained in the seemingly innocuous phrase, through these sentences. Our goal in reading the Bible is to see what God's doing through the sentences and paragraphs of the passage that we're reading. Now, this seems like a statement of the bleeding obvious, if ever there was one. But this bleeding obvious statement is necessary because of what it denies or what it rules out. And that is, we don't say things, or God doesn't say things or do things through words, but only by arranging those words into sentences. Sentences are how we do and say things through language. Again, why am I teaching you this very obvious point? Why am I teaching you to suck eggs like this? Because in my observation, we Christians seem to have a problem in this area with words when we read the Bible. Perhaps it's because we love the Bible and its words so much. But judging by the Bible reading and the exegetical arguments I keep hearing us make, we sometimes seem to think that meaning is made by words rather than by sentences. As if words are little suitcases that can get loaded up with all kinds of meanings and concepts and ideas, 
and can carry those meanings and concepts and ideas around with them wherever they go and unpack them into any given sentence. Or that what a word is doing in this sentence can be discovered by having a look at what it was doing in that sentence over there. This is the most common blunder I see us making in our Bible reading and exegesis and preaching. And as I said, I've done it myself more than once. Let me try to explain what I mean by using a non-biblical example to illustrate. Let's say that when the Moore College scholars of the future are poring over the 18 leather-bound volumes of the collected works of Tony Payne, that they read these two sentences about boys, one in volume three, say, God blessed me with two boisterous, clever boys, Luke and Nick. There's one sentence. God blessed me with two boisterous, clever boys, Luke and Nick. And then later, in volume seven, say, here's another sentence. I separated the two boys who were fighting and told them to stop being so stupid. I separated the two boys who were fighting and told them to stop being so stupid. Now, in these two sentences, let's think about the word boy. Now, the lexical sense or meaning of the word boy, the one that we'd find in the dictionary, is pretty straightforward. It's a young male child or a young person, or possibly a slave or a servant. That's a slightly obscure meaning of the word boy. But this is the semantic range or field or meaning of the word boy. And we discern which part of that semantic range applies in any particular sentence by reading that sentence in its context. So we decide whether the boys that are being referred to were someone's male children. That seems likely in that first sentence when I talk about my two clever boys. Or whether they're just young males generally, which is perhaps more likely in the second sentence, the two boys who were fighting. Or perhaps even whether the boys in question were being regarded as slaves, which is probably unlikely in the context. So this is pretty easy so far, right? That's the meaning of the word boys. However, various concepts are also associated with boys in these two sentences. Concepts like boisterousness, or cleverness, or the fact that they are fighting, or that they come as blessings from God. These are concepts that are attached to the boys in the sentences that I made, those two sentences. But none of these concepts are inherent in the meaning of the word boy. And this is the key mistake I see people keeping on making in Bible reading and exegesis. We take various concepts that are associated with a word in one place or one context and transfer them over into another context. I mean, I can see the biblical commentators of the future writing about my collected works and saying something like this. Pain often associates boys with cleverness. See volume 3, page 27. For pain, boy is cleverness language. It's likely, therefore, that the two fighting boys in volume 7 were having an intellectual dispute, not merely a physical one. And that when Payne tells them not to be so stupid, he's referring to a temporary lack of good sense, not impugning their innate intelligence. Now, this is balderdash. It's linguistic balderdash. But we do this kind of thing far too frequently, it seems to me. Boy is not cleverness language. 
Cleverness doesn't ride around on the coattails of the word boy, waiting to drop into any given sentence that the word boy appears in. Boy means young male person or child. And if you want to say that that particular boy is clever or not, you do it by making a sentence. Now, in everyday English, we know this instinctively, and we never make these kind of basic linguistic errors. We know that you don't say things or mean things by using a word and expecting your hearers or readers to remember how you might have used that word on some completely different occasion and then read the associated concepts or reference that you used in that occasion into the sentence that is now coming out of your mouth. We never do that kind of thing. But sometimes and somehow, when we come to read the Bible, we find ourselves doing strange things like this. And I confess, I have done so myself. So, for example, have you ever read, turning to the Bible, an argument like this one? Here's a quote from a short article about the word helper and what it means in Genesis 2. So here comes a quote. Many opinions of working women have been shaped by the word in Genesis 2.18, helper. And this word therefore merits some greater attention. Was the woman to be merely a helpful assistant to the man? In our day, we use the word helper in the sense of a plumber's assistant, handing the boss the right wrench for the job. But that is far from the meaning of the Hebrew word used to describe the first woman. God created the woman as an ezer, the Hebrew word in Genesis 2.18. The word ezer occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. In two cases, it refers to the first woman, Eve, in Genesis 2. Three times, it refers to powerful nations Israel called on for help when besieged. In the 16 remaining cases, the word refers to God as our help. He is the one who comes alongside us in our helplessness. That's the meaning of Ezer. Because God is not subordinate to his creatures... Any idea that an ezer or helper is inferior is untenable. Now, this author wants to counter the idea that because Eve is Adam's helper, this somehow renders Eve inferior to Adam or subordinate to Adam. And the argument starts quite well by pointing out absolutely correctly that just because we often associate the word helper with junior apprentices or menial assistants in our linguistic context... We can't then read those concepts back into Genesis 2, as if the concepts of inferior status or menial helper or something are attached to the word helper and just can be unloaded into whichever sentence the word helper appears in. Unfortunately, though, the author then goes on to do precisely the same thing with the Old Testament usage of the word. It's quite true that the word helper, or ezer in Hebrew is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to God, with all the associated concepts that come with that of superiority and saving help, of coming alongside us in our helplessness, and so on. But this doesn't mean that these concepts are attached to the word helper and can be unpacked into any other sentence that the word helper appears in. The word helper does not mean a superior or powerful person who comes alongside us in our helplessness. The word helper means in Hebrew, ezer, exactly pretty much what it does in English, that is, someone who offers help or comfort or assistance of some kind. 
And whether that helper is superior or inferior or subordinate or divine or female or male or powerful or incompetent, this is determined in only one way, by reading what the author says about the helper in the sentences that he's writing to his original implied readers, to go back to my definition. The possible inferiority or superiority of the helper in Genesis 2 can be determined in only one way, by reading the sentences of Genesis 2 in their context. And if those sentences don't say anything much about inferiority or superiority of that helper, which I don't really think they do, then we should accept that and move on. We seem to do this thing fairly frequently, it seems to me. We go hunting through the cross-references, or via our Bible software, of course, these days, for other passages that contain the same words that appear in the passage we're reading. And then we start taking ideas and concepts and reference and events and aspects from that cross-referenced passage and then slot them into the passage we're actually reading, as if the word is sort of like a connector that allows you to read into this passage what the word was talking about in some other passage. And of course we do this often quite arbitrarily or conveniently to solve some problem in the passage that we're reading. Now, before you get defensive about all this and about your exegetical habits, let me point out there are exceptions. There are three exceptions that I can think of. Firstly, sometimes, but not always, concepts that are associated with a word can carry over from one context into another if it's in the same paragraph or passage or even sentence. That is, when the context of the sentences that are being made makes it clear that the boys the author is talking about in one sentence are the same clever, boisterous boys from the sentence before. Now, this is not always the case. Sometimes the author might deliberately use the same word in a different way for effect or contrast. And of course, the further apart the two usages of the word are, the less likely that there's any connection. That is, the less likely it is that the author wants his implied original readers to make that conceptual connection in their minds as they read. And when the usages are in two completely different books or documents, the likelihood that the author wants his readers to make some conceptual connection as they read is very remote. That's one exception. A second one is that sometimes an author does use a word to connect the sentence he's writing with concepts contained in a completely different sentence over there by making a quotation or an allusion. He does it deliberately. And we come across this reasonably often in the Bible, especially because it is one long, sprawling, unified story, supervised and breathed out by the one divine author. So the Bible often quotes itself or alludes to something that happened earlier on. But some caution is in order. First of all, we need to be confident that the author is making a quotation or allusion in such a way that his original readers would have spotted it. The fact that a single word in a Pauline sentence was also used in the Septuagint of 2 Chronicles 7 doesn't mean that Paul was wanting his readers to nod and tap the side of their noses and say, oh, of course, this is 2 Chronicles 7 all over again. 
The quotation or allusion needs to be part of what the author himself is doing in the sentence, because remember, that's how meaning is conveyed or made. It's by sentences. The quotation needs to be something that the author himself is intending and doing, not some obscure connection we have found by using Bible software. Secondly, we should make of the quotation or allusion what the author makes of it, and not think that anything and everything from the usage of a word or phrase in the original quoted context can be read into the sentence in which it's being quoted. So, for example, when the author of Hebrews keeps using the word priest to describe Jesus, with all the rich Old Testament history and connotations that his Hebrew readers would have shared, that still doesn't mean that every concept associated with the Old Testament word priest can be read into those sentences and applied to Jesus. In fact, in Hebrews, of course, the whole point is that it doesn't, that Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi and that he doesn't have to make sacrifice for his own sins and so on. Or when Matthew has Jesus refer back to the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12, that doesn't mean that the concepts of cowardice and disobedience that are associated with Jonah also somehow apply to Jesus. It also doesn't mean that fish, as in the great fish, that fish is resurrection language and that when Jesus feeds the 5,000 two chapters later with fish, he is foreshadowing his resurrection. And yet somehow we manage to fall into the trap of making these kinds of exegetical arguments. Well, that's the second exception or caveat, I suppose you'd say. The third one is that sometimes a word is used so often to refer to a particular thing within a particular linguistic community that it comes to have a special attachment to it. And we call this a jargon word, or biblical scholars sometimes call it a technical term. And this means that you only have to use that word and readers know that you're referring to a specific example of what that word could refer to with all its associations. One example would be the word gospel, I guess. It's an everyday word in the time of the New Testament, meaning an announcement of great or significant news. That's just what the word means. But by the time Paul uses that word in 2 Timothy 1.8, towards the end of his ministry, to urge Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel, he would have been confident as an author, and we are as readers, that Timothy knew which particular gospel he was talking about, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and all the concepts and content that's associated with it, without having to spell that out in the sentence itself. Gospel has become a jargon word within the linguistic community of the early Christians that Paul shared with Timothy. Now, technical or jargon words like this aren't super common, and you have to be very sure of yourself and your evidence before you narrow down a word in this way to a particular set of concepts or reference. Well, I started this post talking about the importance of reading sentences. And now I've found that I've made you listen to perhaps way too many of them from me. But I've done this, I guess, not only because all this requires a decent amount of explaining, but because it's really important Understanding God's word is important, it's vital, and therefore reading it well is vital. Neither failing to listen carefully 
to what God is doing through the sentences and paragraphs of Scripture, but also not reading extraneous ideas or concepts into those sentences, especially via the words that the sentences contain. God speaks to us through the sentences of Scripture, not the words of Scripture. He speaks to us through what those sentences mean when they were addressed to the original implied people who read them within the larger context of the whole biblical revelation about his son. So we read the sentences of the New Testament in light of the sentences of the Old Testament that preceded them. And we'd read the Old Testament sentences with an awareness that they foreshadow the Christ that is to come because the New Testament and the sentences there tell us so. I guess my particular hope is that our antenna will quiver with caution whenever we hear phrases like these. When someone says, for example, fire is judgment language. Almost whenever you hear the phrase that something is something language, you should be cautious. Because although fire, for example, is sometimes metaphorically associated with judgment, that doesn't make fire the language of judgment as if wherever the word fire appears, the concept of judgment is not far behind. That can only be determined from context. Secondly, I, I want us to be cautious whenever we hear someone say something like, Paul often uses the word X to refer to Y, and so therefore, because failing the unlikely event that the word X has become a jargon word or a technical word, what Paul is using X to refer to in this sentence should be determined by what this sentence is doing or saying, not other sentences he wrote somewhere else. The referent, that's what you call the thing that the word is referring to, the thing in the world that the word's pointing at. The referent, Y, is not superglued to the word X, so that when X is used in a sentence, the characteristics or concepts of Y can be read in or implied. And I think our antenna should also go up whenever we hear someone say, let's look at all the instances of the word X in order to find out what the Bible teaches about X. Word studies are somewhat useful. They can point us to where the Bible is talking about various subjects, but very often they can be misleading. What the Bible teaches about the subject of X is not carried around in the word X, nor is it constructed by adding together all the things or concepts that the word X is used to refer to in various places. And that's not even the case, even if we're very clever and we start at the beginning of the Bible and we do this biblical theology style all the way through the unfolding story. Discovering what the Bible teaches about any subject is done by reading the sentences and paragraphs in which that subject is talked about within the context of the whole unfolding revelation of Scripture. And it's in the paragraphs where that subject is discussed whether or not the word X is used to discuss it. It's about looking to see what the sentences say within their immediate and larger context and then integrating them together in our thought. Well, that's the linguistic or Bible-reading blunder that I'm concerned we keep making. We keep thinking that meaning is conveyed through words rather than through sentences. Can we please stop making that blunder? I will, if you will. 
Well, my standard little PS at the end of Painful Truth posts is to say, well, there's so much more that could be said about this subject, and that's certainly true in today's case. I will mention one other point, a complication, I suppose, that also confuses us sometimes. We often use Bible words to refer to whole subject areas or doctrines. I'm thinking of words like justification or church or sanctification or pastor or worship. And so we can end up confusing the word for the subject and get ourselves in a bit of a muddle. We can think that wherever we see that word in the Bible, it must have something to do with that subject. Whenever we see the word sanctification, it must have something to do with the subject of growth in Christian godliness or something like that. But often it doesn't. In fact, the word sanctification is often used in the Bible in a way that doesn't have much to do with Christian growth in godliness at all. It's talking about something else. We do sometimes get ourselves in a muddle over this because the Christian words of the Bible have come to stand for whole topics and subject areas and things that we're very concerned about today. And we bring those to the Bible and assume that when the word appears, that somehow it's talking about that idea. Now, one final note for those of you who are a bit more techy in your sort of theological language. The kind of blunder I've been talking about today is sometimes referred to in a couple of ways. It's sometimes called illegitimate totality transfer. Illegitimate totality transfer. That's where you take the various concepts that are associated with a word and assume that they're carried around within the word to be transferred into any context. And the other variety of this blunder is sometimes called illegitimate identity transfer. Illegitimate identity transfer. That's where you think that because a word refers to some particular thing or identity in one context, then the characteristics of that person or that identity or that thing can be transferred into a completely different context in which the word is used. Now, those two complicated labels were first coined by a scholar named James Barr back in the 1960s in his book, The Semantics of Biblical Language. And one of the particular targets of Barr's critique was the famous theological dictionary of the New Testament, Kittel's Dictionary of the New Testament of the time. And Barr criticised Kittel's dictionary for its widespread illegitimate totality transfer. That is, the fact that quite commonly the theological dictionary confused the rich theological ideas of the Bible with the words that are used to convey them, as if what the Bible says about the unconditional, free, gracious love of God, for example, can be all loaded up into the Greek word agape and be carried around in that word. Now, you can chase these things up further if you want to. I'd recommend that if you do want to read further in this area, especially if you're heading towards Bible college or you're at theological college or you're someone who's really doing fairly extensive biblical exegesis in, in your role as a teacher or preacher, uh, the book that I've found most useful is by Cotterell and Turner, Peter Cotterell and Max Turner, Linguistics and Biblical Interpretation. Linguistics and Biblical Interpretation. It's not a new book. It's been around for a little while, but it really helpfully and quite simply explains a bunch of these concepts. And it's very helpful, I found, in setting me straight on some of these linguistic blunders that we tend to make. Well, I think that's quite enough for this week's Painful Truth. It's one of those episodes where it might actually be easier to go and read 
the article rather than listen to it. It's just one of those ones. If you do want to do that, of course, it's contained over at thepainfultruth.online. Just go over there and all the posts are there in text form for you to read and ponder and to share with others and discuss. And I hope that you will do that with this particular one and that as a result, we'll all get just a little bit sharper and better in how we read the precious gem that is God's Word. Well, thanks for being with me again this week. Do get in touch and let me know what you think about all this. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.